Section 4 of the Watergate Report, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. Final Report of the Senate Select Committee on Presidential Campaign Activities, Volume 1, Chapter 1. The Cover-Up, Part 1. The Cover-Up. The news of the break-in at the DNC that reached the public in the newspapers on June 17th and 18th provided little hint of involvement of high campaign and administration officials. For many months, the facts set forth above regarding the planning and implementation of the Gemstone Plan were hidden from public view. This is because on June 17th, just hours after the burglars were arrested, a massive cover-up was begun to conceal the true facts from the nation. This cover-up eventually encompassed destruction and secretion of documents, obstruction of official investigations, subornation of perjury, and offers of money and executive clemency to the Watergate defendants to secure silence. That there was a cover-up of some form can no longer be seriously disputed, since four of its participants, John Dean, Jeb Magruder, Fred LaRue, and Bart Porter, have pleaded guilty to crimes related to it. Dean, Magruder, and LaRue have admitted involvement in a conspiracy to obstruct justice, the basis of which was their participation in cover-up activities, and Porter has confessed to making false statements to the FBI to hide the true Watergate facts. A. White House and CRP Activity, First Three Days After the Break-In On the morning of June 17th, Liddy called Magruder in Los Angeles and informed him that five men, including McCord, had been apprehended in the DNC headquarters. Magruder, who was on a campaign trip with Mitchell, Fred LaRue, Robert Mardian, and Bart Porter, repeated Liddy's report to LaRue, who relayed it to Mitchell. Magruder testified that later in the day, Mitchell told Mardian to have Liddy speak to Kleindienst concerning the possibility of releasing McCord. Mardian denied this, but LaRue said that Mitchell asked someone, probably Mardian or Magruder, to tell Liddy to contact Kleindienst, who in turn was to contact Police Chief Jerry Wilson for details. In any event, in the late morning hours of Saturday, June 17th, Liddy, accompanied by CRP staffer Powell Moore, went to the Burning Tree Country Club near Washington to ask Kleindienst to arrange the release of the five Watergate burglars. Kleindienst, who had received word of the break-in from Henry Peterson at 8 a.m., telephoned Peterson in Liddy's presence and ordered that the Watergate Five receive no special treatment. Kleindienst testified he then told Liddy to leave the premises. That afternoon, the scene of activity shifted to CRP headquarters. Liddy, rushing by Hugh Sloan, commented tersely, quote, My boys got caught last night. I made a mistake. I used someone from here, which I told them I would never do. I'm afraid I'm going to lose my job. End of quote. Robert Odell later observed Liddy go to the shredding room with a pile of documents about, quote, a foot high, unquote. In a telephone conversation later in the day, Magruder, still in California, directed Odell and Robert Reisner to take certain sensitive CRP files home over the weekend. In particular, Magruder asked them to remove the blue file containing gemstone papers from the office. Reisner put the gemstone blue folder file in Odell's briefcase for Odell to remove. Meanwhile, the FBI investigation of the Watergate incident had begun. FBI agents first became aware of Hunt's involvement during the afternoon of June 17th, when, in the course of searching the two hotel rooms previously occupied by the arrested men, 
They discovered address books with White House telephone numbers used by Hunt and Liddy. The FBI interviewed Hunt on the evening of June 17th, but he revealed little. On that same evening, the FBI contacted Alexander Butterfield of the White House staff to determine Hunt's precise affiliation with the White House and to inform the White House that Hunt was possibly involved in the Watergate break-in. After the disclosure of McCord's association with CRP appeared in the newspapers on June 18th, Mitchell issued a statement from Los Angeles, quote, McCord and the other four men arrested in Democratic headquarters Saturday were not operating either in our behalf or with our consent in the alleged bugging attempt, end quote. He commented further that there, quote, is no place in our campaign or in the electoral process for this type of activity, and we will not permit or condone it, end of quote. In a telephone conversation on June 18th, Magruder informed Haldeman, then in Key Biscayne with the president, of the break-in and McCord's involvement. Haldeman responded, Magruder said, by asking Magruder to, quote, get back to Washington immediately and talk with Mr. Dean and Mr. Strachan and Mr. Sloan and others on Monday to try to find out what actually happened and whose money it was and so on, end of quote. Haldeman confirms the phone call, but he said the conversation concerned a review of a press release on the break-in. The next day, June 19th, Ronald Ziegler, also in Key Biscayne, announced that the White House was not conducting an inquiry into the Watergate incident. He declined to comment on what he termed a, quote, third-rate burglary attempt, unquote. On June 20th, the press reported that Hunt's name had been found in the address books of Barker and Martinez. After first identifying Hunt as a consultant to Colson, the White House later denied he worked for Colson. The cover-up began to take form in a number of meetings held on June 19th. Probably the most significant was an evening meeting in Mitchell's apartment attended by Mitchell, Magruder, LaRue, Mardian, and Dean. Earlier in the day, Odell had returned various files, including the gemstone files, to Magruder. Magruder, according to his testimony, asked the others present at the meeting what he should do with these sensitive files. LaRue testified that Mitchell replied that it might be a good idea if Magruder had a fire in his house. Magruder similarly testified that those at the meeting concluded that the gemstone file should be destroyed immediately. Mitchell testified that there was no reference to a gemstone file at the meeting and that he did not suggest the destruction of any papers. Dean did not remember whether the destruction of files was mentioned. Mardian testified that there was no discussion of destruction of, quote, gemstone files or sensitive files, unquote, while he was at the meeting. Dean testified that he participated in a number of other Watergate-related meetings and conversations on June 19th. On that morning, Ehrlichman told Dean to discover what he could about the Watergate incident and specifically to explore Colson's involvement. Dean immediately informed Ehrlichman of a conversation he had just had with Magruder, who had stated that, quote, this was all Liddy's fault, unquote. Dean later talked with Colson, who suggested that they should meet with Ehrlichman as soon as possible and expressed concern over the contents of Hunt's safe. Shortly before noon, Dean and Liddy met. Liddy told Dean that the men arrested in the break-in were, quote, his men, unquote, and that, quote, Magruder had pushed him into doing it, unquote. Dean testified that, shortly after his meeting with Liddy, Strachan came to Dean's office and reported that, at Haldeman's direction, he had removed and destroyed damaging materials from Haldeman's files over the weekend. Strachan later confirmed this in testimony before the committee. Haldeman testified he did not recall giving Strachan such instructions. Dean met with Ehrlichman twice during the afternoon of June 19th. In the first meeting, Dean testified he told Ehrlichman everything he had learned from Liddy, 
and Ehrlichman requested that Dean keep him advised of the results of his inquiries. Dean testified he also told Ehrlichman at this time about the earlier meetings he attended in Mitchell's office in late January and early February, and his subsequent conversation with Haldeman, where he expressed concern over the proposed Liddy plan. Ehrlichman testified he had no recollection of receiving such a report from Dean at that time. According to the edited presidential conversations, Ehrlichman made a similar statement to the president. Colson was present at the second meeting, during which, Dean testified, Ehrlichman instructed him to call Liddy and advise Liddy to tell Hunt to leave the country. Dean said he did this, quote, without even thinking, unquote, but later called Liddy back to retract the instruction after he and Colson convinced Ehrlichman that such a course would be unwise. Ehrlichman, however, testified that he gave Dean no orders to instruct Liddy to tell Hunt to leave the country. The edited presidential transcripts, page 1022, 1179 through 80, indicate that Ehrlichman told the president that he gave no such instruction. Colson raised at this meeting the matter of Hunt's safe and suggested, with Ehrlichman's concurrence, that Dean take custody of its contents. Bruce Carley, the White House staff secretary, entered the meeting and was instructed by Ehrlichman to have the safe opened in Dean's presence. The safe was opened that evening, after Dean had departed, by Carley with Fred Fielding, Dean's assistant, in attendance. Carley knew that the contents of the safe were to be delivered to Dean. Colson's concern about Hunt's safe apparently derived from a comment Hunt had made to Colson's secretary, Joan Hall, earlier in the day. Before leaving the White House for the last time, Hunt stopped by Colson's office and said to Hall, quote, I just want you to know that the safe is loaded, end quote. On June 19th, or possibly June 20th, Dean also met with Kleindienst and Henry Peterson in Kleindienst's office. Kleindienst testified, and Peterson agreed, that the purpose of the meeting was, quote, to inform Dean as counsel to the president that the Department of Justice and the FBI would be compelled and would immediately launch a full-scale, intensive, thorough investigation, end quote. Dean also testified, he told Kleindienst earlier in the meeting, before Peterson arrived, that he was, quote, very concerned that this matter could lead directly to the president, unquote, and that if the investigation led into the White House, he suspected that the chances of re-electing the president would be severely damaged. Dean also testified he informed Peterson, after Kleindienst left, that he had no idea where, quote, this thing, unquote, might end, but he did not think the White House could stand a wide-open investigation. Dean said Peterson gave him, quote, the impression that he realized the problems of a wide-open investigation of the White House in an election year, unquote. Peterson recalls only some discussion about a general probe of the White House in an election year. He gave assurances there would be no fishing expedition. B. The disposition of the contents of Hunt's safe. Dean testified that, in mid-morning on June 20th, GSA representatives brought him several cartons containing the contents of Hunt's safe, and in the afternoon he and Fielding examined these materials. In addition to electronic equipment in a briefcase, Dean discovered numerous memorandums to Colson regarding the plumbers, a psychological study of Ellsberg, various materials related to the Pentagon Papers, a number of classified State Department cables, and a forged cable implicating the Kennedy administration in the assassination of South Vietnamese President Diem. Dean called David Young, who agreed to store the classified cables in his office. Subsequently, Dean testified he met with Ehrlichman and described for him the contents of the safe. According to Dean's testimony, Ehrlichman instructed Dean to shred the documents and to, quote, deep six, unquote, the briefcase containing the electronic equipment. 
Dean said that when he asked Ehrlichman what he meant by Deep Six, Ehrlichman explained, quote, well, when you cross over the bridge on your way home, just toss the briefcase into the river, unquote. Fred Fielding has testified that Dean told him that Ehrlichman instructed Dean to, quote, Deep Six, unquote, the briefcases. Ehrlichman denied to the committee that he gave such instructions. Ehrlichman also denied to the president that he, Ehrlichman, had given a Deep Six order. Dean testified he did not follow Ehrlichman's order. However, in January 1973, Dean, in fact, did destroy certain Hunt notebooks which had been in the safe. He did not volunteer this information to the special prosecutor until after he had pleaded guilty to a conspiracy to obstruct justice charge. Furthermore, he did not volunteer this information when he testified publicly or privately before this committee. Dean testified that on June 25th or 26th, he went to Ehrlichman to argue that because there were many witnesses to the removal of the various items from the safe, it would be too dangerous to destroy them. He suggested that the material be turned over to the FBI and that sensitive documents be given directly to Patrick Gray, its acting director. By following this procedure, Dean said, he would be able to testify under oath that to the best of his knowledge, quote, everything found in the safe had been turned over to the FBI, unquote. Dean retrieved the State Department cables from Young and on June 26th or 27th gave FBI agents all the materials from the safe except two envelopes containing politically sensitive materials and the Hunt notebooks. Dean told Ehrlichman what he had done on June 28th, apparently not mentioning the Hunt notebooks. Ehrlichman informed Dean that he was meeting with Gray later that day and that Dean should attend and bring the politically sensitive documents. Dean testified that when Gray met with Dean and Ehrlichman in Ehrlichman's office, Dean told Gray that the Hunt materials had been turned over to the FBI agents with the exception of two envelopes, which he did not believe related to Watergate in any way. But, Dean testified, he told Gray, quote, should they leak out, they would be political dynamite in an election year and thus should never be made public, unquote. Dean then gave the envelopes to Gray. Gray testified that Dean said that these files were, quote, political dynamite, unquote, and, quote, clearly should not see the light of day, unquote. He testified that, although Ehrlichman and Dean did not expressly instruct him to destroy the files, quote, the implication of the substance and tone of their remarks was that these two files were to be destroyed, and I interpreted this to be an order from the counsel to the President of the United States, issued in the presence of one of the two top assistants to the President of the United States, unquote. Ehrlichman has denied that anyone instructed Gray that the documents in the envelope should never see the light of day. However, Gray, in December 1972, burned the documents at his home in Connecticut. C. White House concern over the Mexican and Dahlberg checks. On the morning of June 21, 1972, Ehrlichman called Gray to inform him that Dean would be handling the Watergate inquiry for the White House and that he should deal directly with Dean on Watergate matters. Dean and Gray met on the 21st and again on the 22nd. During these meetings, Gray informed Dean that the FBI, in the course of investigating the $100 bills found on the burglars and in their hotel rooms, had discovered that four Mexican checks totaling $89,000 and a check for $25,000 from Kenneth Dahlberg, which were originally contributed to the president's campaign, had been deposited in Bernard Barker's bank account in Miami. Dean testified that, about the same time, Mitchell and Stans asked him to attempt to prevent disclosure of the Dahlberg check, which might prove embarrassing for Dwayne Andreas, 
the campaign contributor behind the check. Dean testified that he went to see Gray on June 22nd at the request of Haldeman and Ehrlichman to discuss the Dahlberg and Mexican checks. Dean had been informed by Stans that the checks had reached Barker's account after Sloan turned the checks over to Liddy for cashing. Liddy had used Barker for this purpose. The serial numbers on the $100 bills obtained from the burglars demonstrated that this was money Barker gave Liddy when he cashed the Mexican and Dahlberg checks. D. White House use of the CIA to restrict the FBI Watergate investigation. On June 22nd, Helms and Gray conversed by telephone. According to Gray, Helms, during that conversation, assured Gray that the CIA had nothing to do with the Watergate break-in. Haldeman testified that the next day, acting at President Nixon's direction after meeting with him, Haldeman and Ehrlichman called CIA Director Helms and Deputy Director Walters to the White House for a meeting. At this session, according to Helms and Walters, Haldeman asked if there were any CIA connection with the Watergate break-in. Helms replied there was none. Haldeman, however, suggested that an FBI investigation in Mexico might uncover CIA operations or assets. Helms replied that no FBI investigation of Watergate would jeopardize any CIA operations. Nevertheless, Haldeman and Ehrlichman directed Walters to meet with Gray and tell him that any further investigation into Mexico could endanger CIA assets there. Ehrlichman contends the meeting's only conclusion was that Walters and Gray, quote, would sit down together and talk through what the problems might be, unquote. Haldeman does not recall that the question of the Mexican money was raised at the meeting with Helms and Walters or with the president earlier in the day, but Haldeman testified that he did request Walters to meet with Gray to assure that the FBI investigation would not expose, quote, earlier national security or CIA activities, unquote. Ehrlichman, however, recalled the president's concern about, quote, the Mexican money or the Florida bank or whatever, unquote. Walters and Gray met later in the afternoon. Walters told Gray he had just talked with, quote, senior staff members at the White House and then related the White House concern about the investigation into the Mexican money. Gray assured Walters that he would abide by the general agency agreement that the CIA and the FBI would not expose each other's sources. A memorandum which Walters prepared on this meeting indicates that Gray was concerned with how to, quote, low-key, unquote, the Watergate investigation. But Gray testified he did not mean to imply, quote, that the FBI investigation would be other than aggressive and thorough, unquote, and only wanted to, quote, pursue this investigation without compromising CIA assets and resources, unquote. After the meeting between Walters and Gray, Gray telephoned Dean, who urged that the FBI not conduct any interviews that would expose CIA sources. Gray agreed to postpone temporarily the interview of Manuel Ogario, whose name appeared on the four Mexican checks deposited in Barker's account. Meanwhile, General Walters, after discussions at the CIA, had concluded that the ongoing FBI investigation could not jeopardize any CIA sources or activities in Mexico. On June 26th, Walters was called by Dean regarding the matters Haldeman and Ehrlichman had earlier discussed with Walters at the White House. Walters testified that he checked on Dean with Ehrlichman, who told him it was appropriate to discuss these items with Dean because, quote, he is in charge of the whole matter, unquote. Walters met with Dean on June 26th. He testified and Dean confirmed that Dean pressed him about the possibility of CIA involvement in the Watergate break-in and that he emphasized to Dean that there was no CIA connection. He said he told Dean, 
quote, Mr. Dean, any attempt to involve the agency in the stifling of this affair would be a disaster. It would destroy the credibility of the agency with the Congress, with the nation. It would be a grave disservice to the President. I will not be a party to it, and I am prepared to resign before I do anything that would implicate the agency in this matter. Unquote. Walters testified that the following morning, June 27th, he again received a telephone call from Dean asking him to come to Dean's office. He said Dean told him that, quote, some of the suspects were wobbling and might talk, unquote, and that Dean again asked if he had discovered any CIA involvement in the matter. Walters testified that, when he replied that there was none, Dean asked whether there was any way the CIA could meet the bail or pay the salaries of the defendants while they were in jail. Walters said he informed Dean there was no way the agency could involve itself in this. Dean testified that he first heard discussion concerning payments to the defendants at a meeting on June 23rd or 24th with Mardian, Mitchell, and LaRue, where Mardian told the group, quote, the CIA could take care of this entire matter if they wished, unquote. Walters testified that on June 28th, Dean called him again, asking him to come to his office. Dean then told Walters that a scheduled meeting between Helms and Gray had been canceled and that Ehrlichman wanted Gray to deal with Walters instead. Dean asked whether Walters could assist to limit the FBI investigation to the five defendants. Walters said he had no authority in this matter and told Dean that the CIA could become involved only at the president's direction. Dean confirmed this testimony. Dean testified that his meetings with Walters were at Ehrlichman's express request. Dean said Ehrlichman told him to deal with Walters because he was a good friend of the White House, that the White House had installed him as deputy director so it could have influence over the CIA. On the evening of July 5th, Gray telephoned Walters and said he would pursue the investigation in Mexico unless Helms or Walters wrote a letter stating that the investigation would uncover CIA assets or activities. The next morning, Walters met with Gray. Walters testified, quote, I told Mr. Gray right at the outset that I could not tell, and even less, could I give him a letter saying that the pursuit of the FBI's investigation would in any way jeopardize CIA activities in Mexico, unquote. It was at this meeting, Gray testified, that he first suspected that someone might be trying to interfere with his investigation. After Walters left Gray's office, Gray called Clark McGregor in San Clemente and expressed the opinion that, quote, people on the White House staff are careless and indifferent in their use of the CIA and FBI, unquote. Gray asked McGregor to inform President Nixon of his problem. Thirty-seven minutes later, the president telephoned Gray. Gray testified that he said to the president, quote, Mr. President, there is something that I want to speak to you about. Dick Walters and I feel that people on your staff are trying to mortally wound you by using the CIA and FBI and by confusing the question of CIA interest in or not in people the FBI wishes to interview, unquote. Gray testified that after a, quote, slight pause, unquote, the president said, quote, Pat, you just continue to conduct your aggressive and thorough investigation, unquote. Gray testified he believed his message to the president was, quote, adequate to put him on notice that the members of the White House staff were using the FBI and the CIA, unquote. However, in his May 22, 1973 statement, the president maintained that despite his July 6th conversation with Gray, he was not aware of, quote, efforts to limit the investigation or to conceal possible involvement of members of the administration and the campaign committee, unquote. The president did not ask Gray what people on the staff were trying to use the CIA and FBI. He did not indicate that the charges were serious or that he would suspend or fire those involved. 
Gray testified, quote, Frankly, I expected the president to ask me some questions, and for two weeks thereafter, I think it was on the 12th and again the 28th, I asked General Walters if the president had called him. And when I heard nothing, you know, I began to feel that General Walters and I were alarmists, unquote. In his May 22, 1973 statement, the president admitted directing Haldeman and Ehrlichman to take steps to ensure that the FBI Watergate investigation not expose, quote, an unrelated covert operation of the CIA, unquote. The president also conceded in his May 22nd statement that he had directed Haldeman and Ehrlichman to restrict the FBI Watergate investigation to prevent the exposure of the activities of the plumbers. As is shown later in this report, the payoffs and promises made to Howard Hunt appear to have been largely motivated by a fear of Hunt's revelation of his activities for the plumbers. E. Mardian LaRue Liddy Meeting. On June 20th or 21st, 1972, Liddy, Mardian, and LaRue met in LaRue's apartment to allow Liddy to give a first hand report of the Watergate operation. Liddy told Mardian and LaRue that he had employed the five men arrested at the DNC, that he and Hunt had organized the operation, that they had occupied a room in the Watergate Hotel during the break in, and that he had shredded documents from his files that related to the break in. Liddy assured LaRue and Mardian that the operation could not be traced to him, but that if an investigation did implicate him, he would never reveal any information. He stated that he was even willing to be assassinated, quote, on any street corner at any time, unquote, if LaRue and Mardian were not satisfied with his assurances. Mardian testified that Liddy conveyed the impression that he conducted the break-in, quote, on the express authority of the president, unquote, with CIA assistance. According to Mardian, Liddy said Hunt felt it was CRP's obligation to provide bail money, legal fees, and family support. LaRue testified that Liddy did not discuss who had approved the Watergate operation, although he did mention that Magruder had been pressuring him to improve the surveillance equipment in the DNC offices. During this meeting, LaRue first became aware of financial commitments to the Watergate defendants for bail, attorney's fees, and family support. On the same day, LaRue and Mardian briefed Mitchell on Liddy's report. According to Mitchell, he then learned, for the first time, of Liddy's involvement in the Watergate burglary, quote, the Ellsberg matter, the Dita Beard matter, and a few of the other little gems, unquote. Referring to these other scandals as, quote, White House horrors, unquote, Mitchell testified that, in his opinion, their exposure would have been more destructive to the re-election campaign than the Watergate break-in, and that therefore he had participated in activities to conceal those matters from the public during the campaign. End of section four. Recording by Colleen McMahon.